Philosophy Podcast. I'm Toby Buckle. So, as promised, this week's episode is an audience questions one. I get so many good comments, and I've been meaning to respond to some of them publicly for some time now. And I actually got quite a, through quite a few of them. I think we got some good content on here. So this is just me for this episode, and then we'll be back to interviews next week. I took the topics and put them together in the reverse order of the title. So I've got a bunch of general questions, and then I'm going to be talking a little bit more at length from a question about free will, and some of the questions and emails I've received about the Charles Murray race and IQ thing. So I'm going to start with just a quick fire round, a few minutes each, of a bunch of questions on a bunch of stuff. I'm then going to do a longer answer on free will, and then I'm going to really break down why I think the Charles Murray thesis is both flawed and dangerous. So that's this episode. I hope you enjoy it. As always, if you want to support the podcast, you can sponsor us on Patreon, patreon.com stroke political philosophy podcast. You can also share on social media, always helps. Links to all of that are on the website, politicalphilosophypodcast.com, politicalphilosophypodcast.com. And yeah, for now I will be presenting myself, huzzah. So um, yeah, buckle in, I take a whole bunch of stuff and I dive into some really, really controversial stuff. Again, hooray! So yeah, please enjoy me talking to myself, or talking to the audience rather. Questions coming in from Facebook, Twitter, Reddit, and email. start by doing a fairly quick-fire round of question and answers from what I got from social media when I put out a request, and then I'm going to take a little bit more time at the end for some slightly more detailed questions I've got through email. But let's just take this away. So this one's from Twitter. Question. What does philosophy have to say? about taking into account future generations on something like climate change. Recently, a well-known economist argued for thinking hundreds of years ahead, which seemed to me to be bonkers. Yeah, great question. I think it depends what your underlying philosophical assumptions are. Um, and if you're interested in this in general, I'd recommend the podcast I did with Dr. Rupert Reed entitled Wittgenstein vs. Rawls, where we talk at some length about static versus dynamic theories. So, in short, you have a number of approaches to morality which are time-static, so generally deontology following a set of rules or guidelines, or something like contract theory, where society is imagined as a contract in which we all agree to certain things and receive certain benefits from society back. That honestly doesn't seem to say much, because that set of rules by def definition exists within our current time, 
and there have been some attempts to build future people into that, but it's really like don't steal, don't kill pertains to present tense you and present tense persons. When you get on to the other side of moral philosophy, which is consequentialism, then there is a strong case for taking into account future peoples, but I think it's a bit more nuanced than philosophers would have it. So in theory, if you're a utilitarian, say, you're trying to maximise the well-being of all current people and also all possible people. Now, what seems to go wrong with that is given that all future people so vastly outnumber all present people, then it would seem like the concerns of the future just necessarily override the concerns of the present. I think the reality is a bit more nuanced than that. I think you also have to take into account uncertainty about the future. So, take an example, um, the communist revolutions, um, Stalin said this a lot, would often say, it is justified to kill however many million people now, because we will be creating li better lives for however many billion people in the future, and the needs of the future billions outweigh the needs of the present millions. So, in a sense, that's just straightforward utilitarian arithmetic, right? And I think that's why people distrust utilitarianism. But then you also have to take into account uncertainty. So to take the example of Stalinists saying it's justified to kill a million people to create better lives for uncountable billions in the future, well, what's the probability, what's your estimated likelihood of success of creating those better lives for billions? And it has to be fairly low, right, because many, many people throughout history have used that explicit calculus, and almost none of them to none of them have succeeded, whereas the probability of killing millions in the present is a near certainty. So I think once you start taking probability into account, that tempers some of the seemingly more problematic conclusions that you'd get from, um, from utilitarianism on this. So th that would be my answer. I think there is a utilitarian case that we do need to weight future people into our decisions. But the further into the future you go, the more uncertain you get. However, specifically when it comes to the case of climate change, I'm not a scientist, but my understanding is we can say fairly confidently that this is something that's going to happen. And even if there's a wide range of outcomes, those outcomes range from somewhat bad to very bad indeed. So I do think there's a case for taking into account the future suffering of people because of climate change, given that there's a fairly high likelihood that it will happen. And even if it was, even if it was like, say, a 20 or 30% chance that climate change was going to happen, that, to me, would still be high enough to start taking that seriously. Like, a 20% chance of getting shot in the head is a big enough chance that you would avoid it at almost all costs. And global warming does seem to be the civilizational equivalent of that. Now, I don't think that logic applies to other sorts of taking future people into account. So people on my side of the aisle, the political left, 
are forever talking about revolution, and I might do a podcast on this, and I just have no idea what they mean. Do they mean the violent overthrow of the American government? That doesn't seem a particularly desirable outcome. Do they mean some sort of large-scale social collapse? What do they have in mind? And no matter how desirable they postulate that this might be, what is the damage that would necessarily occur in the present, and what are your perceived chances of success? Which, again, have to be fairly low. So, my answer, what does philosophy say about future people? A lot of it actually says depressingly nothing. Uh, consequentialists and, you know, utilitarians in particular have started thinking about it in a more rigorous way. But I think they often get tripped up because they don't take uncertainty into account enough. There's a lot more I could say on that, but that would be my first crack at that. Next question, also from Twitter. Do you sometimes feel that one of the major Western left's problems is that it is not universalist enough, meaning that it is too anti-Western right as opposed to anti-right per se? Um, I think I know what you're driving at with this one, and... I'll jump off the deep end and say, yeah, sure. So the concern would be um, a, a conservative or an intellectual dark web type might point to a feminist who is, say, very exercised by the gender pay gap or sexual assault on college campuses um, in a way that the critic thinks is overblowing the problem, but then is not at all concerned by the repression of women in Pakistan or Saudi Arabia, and indeed will excuse that oppression on the basis of some sort of shoddy cultural relativism selectively and somewhat hypocritically applied. So that would be the charge against the West. I'll actually grant that in theory, but I want to make a really big caveat to it. So, in theory, yeah, that description does match some people on the left some of the time. There are people who get, I think, an admirable desire to be tolerant and inclusive and kind of take it... I, I, I'm going to say too far, but that's not right. Get confused in their application of it. That is true for some people some of the time. And I think that's wrong. And I actually have a podcast I've just recorded with Shadi Hamid, who is a scholar of Islamism. He's a liberal in a sort of classical sense, personally. Um, and we talk about, like, how liberalism can get that right. And once you really get down to brass tacks, that question can be more complicated than it would seem. So I'll grant it in theory, but, and it's a big but, here's what I want to add to this. The problem with liberalism when we get these cases is that they're not being liberal enough or they're not being liberal consistent consistently so the solution is to be more liberal and is to be more consistent in your liberalism by analogy i just had brian earp on the podcast and we talked about scientific method and we agreed that a lot of the time, what we take as science and what we think has been scientifically proven is just bad science. But that doesn't mean that we suddenly start believing in homeopathy and um, healing crystals. 
the solution to bad science and bad medicine is better science and better medicine, not woo-woo and mumbo-jumbo. Likewise, the solution to an incomplete and partially applied liberalism is a better, a more enthusiastic, and a more consistently applied liberalism. So the fact that some feminists don't express enough concern about, say, the fate of women in other cultures, that means, yes, we should care about women in other cultures. That doesn't mean we should stop caring about women at home. You can hold both thoughts in your head at the same time. We can do this. So that's my answer to that. This one's from Reddit, following along on the social justice theme. They ask, Do you not think a huge problem is the confrontational nature of call-outs that is inherent in the language of social justice? For instance, microaggressions and privilege. And I'm skipping a little bit, they then go on to say, Privilege is a loaded term, one that immediately forces everyone to rank themselves versus everyone else. This cannot end well, with the result that a working-class white man is told that he is, quote, privileged, compared to, say, Oprah Winfrey or Michelle Obama. His anger is then entirely predictable. Um, I, I, that's not what social justice types mean when they use the word privilege. But the problem here... I'll actually, again, I'll actually agree somewhat with the premise of this question. Privilege is kind of the wrong term, and when I talk about it, I don't say privilege, I say unearned advantage. And here's my reasoning here. I think privilege, as social justice types mean it, is a real thing. And I can get into a bit why I think that, but I think privilege is also the wrong word, in that literally it's just the wrong mouth noises. And the reason is, when you use the word privilege in everyday conversational American English, the most immediate connotation of that is affluence. But that's not what social justice types mean by it, so they might be behooved to use a different word, because we're continually getting this question, and we're continually being asked to get ourselves out from under this of, well, is a homeless white person who has nothing in the world, is he privileged? Now, according to the definition of the term that social justice types will give you, yes, he is, but that sounds really weird to say the homeless white man is privileged, because it sounds like we're saying he's affluent, right? That's not what social justice types mean. What they mean is unearned advantage. So let me give you this example. There's actually quite a lot of social science data to say that if you're a man, being tall increases your educational workplace outcomes, um, earning potential, even holding constant for other factors. So I'm quite tall, right? I'm about six foot. That gives me an advantage in life, an advantage that is unearned. I would still have had had that advantage even if I were homeless, and less advantaged in absolute terms, I would still have that one specific advantage. Or likewise, say, someone who, just because of their genetics, is born very physically strong, that would be an advantage that would advantage them in some circumstances and not in others, and you would still have that advantage 
even if you were comparatively disadvantaged overall. I also think it takes the moral dimension out of it. When I talk about privilege, and I generally don't use that term, I'm just describing the world. It's not a judgement on people. It's not a judgement on people if they're born tall, or if they're born strong, or if they're born white, or male, or cisgendered. This is just a description of the world. It's also a description that, yes, we are advantaged by our whiteness, by our maleness. And just to give one example, about 10 to 15% of white Americans, if you do a public opinion poll, don't want black people living in their neighbourhood. These are their professed attitudes. When I move into a new neighbourhood, I do not have to worry. Well, I, I might have to worry that I might be disliked or excluded for other things, but I don't have to worry that I will be disliked or excluded because of my race. That is an advantage I have in the world. You could say a privilege I have. But privilege sounds like I'm saying that I'm wealthy. If I were to say I'm a very privileged person, in conversational English, people would hear wealthy, right? That's not what social justice types mean. So, why not just use the word unearned advantage, if that's what people mean? Well, that's actually kind of what I do. I think the reason that social justice people tend to dig in their heels on points like this, is that we are going to be misunderstood, whatever we say. There is an entire industry online right now dedicated to selectively reading, or listening to, everything that social justice people put out there, finding the worst examples, and piling on. Our opponents really do engage with us in bad Faith. And this has been shown now. If you look at someone like uh, Milo Yiannopoulos, I always get the name wrong, um, but Milo, some of his email correspondence has come out, and you can see that the desire to find something, to misrepresent it, and to go after people in a strategic way is self-conscious. So I think social justice types... You know, if I say to them, look, privilege probably isn't the best word to be understood, I always say unearned advantage, what they will say, and it's not an unreasonable point, is no matter what we say, they're going to misunderstand us. And this is true. When I've put out my stuff on social justice, there is a certain category of person that just gets mad about it. And there's nothing really you can do about that, right? So, that's, that's where it lands. On the other hand, I would make the argument that, you know, I'm very much influenced by Wittgensteinian ordinary language philosophy, and language is a distributed, ground-up phenomenon, and ultimately words mean what they mean, like usage is the final arbiter of meaning, and if the meaning we have in a particular term is different than the meaning we're trying to communicate, then the fault lies with us. And we can say, that's not what I mean by privilege, that's not what privilege ought to mean. But you can't just tell a language that it means something. Language is a communal practice. It is what it is. So I personally 
I can talk in social justice categories, and you'll hear me do it a little bit when I get someone else on who's using the same categories. Generally, I try to translate what I'm saying into more everyday language, but that's a personal choice, and I do understand why some people stick with the categories that they do. Next question, and this is from Facebook. Do I think it's possible for a person to be, quote, apolitical? No. No, I don't. Easy question. So, I mean, I guess it depends what you mean, right? If by political you mean, like, running for political office, or, like, participating in elections, then, yeah, sure, it's possible to be apolitical. And I guess when people self-describe as apolitical, that's sort of what they mean. They mean they don't vote, they don't consume political news, and, you know, they generally shy away from expressing political opinions. But I would actually argue, again, and this is based on a sort of Wittgensteinian ordinary language philosophy, what does political mean, and hence what does it mean to be not political? Well, if you look at how political is used as a word in contemporary conversational American English most of the time, it has a number of different meanings and attributes that are much, much broader than a narrow party political sense. So most obviously, political relates to the use of power, to the decision-making within groups and collectives, to the ordering of priorities, to the framing of agendas. These are all aspects of Congress or government, but they're also all aspects of our social lives. They're not necessarily the most important aspects, but power is always with us, in a good or a bad way. We're never going to have an instance in which there is no exercise of power. We're never going to have an, 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 an instance in which we don't have to rank priorities, set agendas, and this can be in a mundane way. If, if me and you are going to a bar together, and I say, well, let's go in this place. And you say, um, well, I, I went in there last week. Um, what about what about this place? That There is a political aspect to that conversation. We're exercising power over each other, which can be in a gentle way through persuasion and influence. And then if you said, well, you know, we've just been in there and and um, this, this place has nicer beers, you're, you're, you're setting priorities it's more important that we, we get a nicer drink than that, you know, we go to the place that's closer, or price, or whatever. This, this is the political aspect of our interactions with each other. Now, it's not necessarily the most important aspect. If we're getting a beer together, then there may be an economic component. We have to pay the bill. There'll be a social component. We're, we're chatting together and having a good time. There'll, there'll be an aesthetic component. We might be getting a craft beer and want to enjoy it. And there will also be a political component. The, the political is always with us. And... It's, it's neither possible or desirable that, that it not be. So that's my answer to that. Okay, next one, and this one I'm going to take a little bit more time with. It's a fun question, even though it's a very critical question. I quite like the way it's written. And it's about free will and why the questioner thinks... And this was actually quite... We got over 400 comments on this one on Reddit. And many people felt that the question of free will was not as interesting as we were making out. 
Um, so I want to answer this, and then I'm going to take it in a direction that people perhaps wouldn't expect, or maybe not even want, and relate it to social justice. So here's the question, quote, and this is the, the guys, the person writing this is sounding off on um, people who um, are free will skeptics. He says, these guys are just like the new atheists all over again. It's free will atheism. Free will is dead. Free will is dead. Free will is not great. Free will causes suffering and is dangerous. How many times will these scintillating intellects beat the dead horse that is libertarian freedom? It's called compatibilism. It's only been around for a few centuries, and appears in any philosophical review of free will in question. So I can see how you've missed all of that in your plucky new brain science. The challenge for free will philosophy is not to articulate compatibilism, but to communicate compatibilism to the wider community. No matter how many times you explain compatibilism, the Sam Harrises of the world just blink and say, well, that's not free will. And then they go back to kicking originalism. So, end quote. That, that's, a, that, that's a lovely question. I want to take a bit of time with this. Um, firstly, I'm actually going to step in with this with both feet and say the analogy to new atheism actually really holds in my point of view. Like, that makes sense to me, and it makes sense for this reason. The definition of God most people have walking around in their heads with as a being, as a supervening and supervising force in the world. I mean, maybe there's something I'm missing, but I just don't see that there are any good intellectually credible arguments for this. At all. Period. Full stop. Now, when I've talked to religious people on the podcast, that is not at all the conception of God that they're defending. So I had Dale Martin on, who I like a lot, and who is a very, very intelligent New Testament scholar, and also a practicing Christian. And he quite happily owned, no, in a historical sense, the miracles of Jesus did not happen as a historian. Jesus did not, in the modern physical sense, descend into hell. However, there are other meanings in a postmodern way that we can ascribe to that that are still meaningful for me, are still inform my morality, but aren't overtly contradictory with scientific facts about the world. So that's a point of view. So you see where I'm going with this, right? In a sense, Dale Martin is a deistic compatibilist. He is trying to articulate a theology of the New Testament in a way that is broadly compatible with acknowledging scientific truth. And more power to him, right? However, as I pointed out again and again, and some people thought I was beating a dead horse here, the conception of God as ultimately finding meaning in the universe, this is not the conception of God that most people are walking around with most of the time. So let's map this back onto free will. Yeah, as a libertarian, you are the originator of your actions. 
there's really just not that much to be said for free will, and the, 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 the question is quite right. We did not need to wait for modern neuroscience to know that. It's, it's almost an incoherent idea. And check out my podcast entitled The Illusion of Free Will with Greg Caruso, where we just really make that argument and nail it in. So I'm not going to um, belabor the point that originalist free will is an illusion, I, I think basically everyone who's thought about this accepts that at this point. But again, analogous to God, when philosophers talk about it, they're doing a compatibilist thing. They're saying that free will is, is, is exercising choice within a community or something like that. Whereas most people walking around are walking around with an idea of free will that is completely indefensible and predictably dangerous. And the analogy to God really holds. If everyone was walking around believing in God in the same way that Dale Martin believes in God, we wouldn't have a lot of the problems that we do. Religious people behave badly, often because they literally believe in things like the afterlife. If there really is another realm after this one, then almost anything becomes justified to get there, right? And it turns out that there's a, a certain class of people who will tell you how to get there and how not to. And it turns out that that tends to align with their political agenda, which often isn't very good. So the fact that people believe something intellectually indefensible in the case of God is reliably leading them to bad behaviours. And the same thing's true of free will. If you believe that people are the ultimate originators of their actions, you believe that they need to be made to suffer or rewarded in a way that you would never get to just from maximising good consequences alone. Now, that's why it matters to attack the positions which are not held by the mature thinkers, but are held by the masses. You can say, well, yes, everybody knows, everybody knows that, that there's no God and that free will doesn't exist. Well, everyone doesn't know that. And I agree, it is beating an intellectual dead horse. Like, at a certain point, the atheist arguments against God get boring. The, 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 the argument has been made, and it has not been refuted. And at a certain point, we're just repeating ourselves. And the same thing is true of the free will thing. I'll, I'll grant you, you can, you can get lost in this wheelhouse. Here's what I do want to say, though. Obviously, some version of compatibilism has to be right. But let's stop using words that mean something different when most people hear them. So I said to Dale Martin in my interview, by some of what you mean by God, I believe in God, right? But I would never say publicly, I believe in God. I would never say to someone else, you should do this because of God, or I would never use that word in a sentence because I know it will mean something different to them. And this is actually quite similar to the point I just made about the word privilege, might be the wrong word. Again, I just keep coming back. We're going to have Dr. Rupert Reed back on to tell us about Wittgenstein and language, by the way, because I keep coming back to a Wittgensteinian conception of language. Language is a communal good. There's no one person defining it. There can't be a single person defining it. So if the word God means a supervising, supervening entity that has a personality, like a person, a creator force, if that's what it means to most people, 
don't use the word God to mean something else. If what you mean to say is you find the universe meaningful, say that. I can say to people just fine, I find the universe meaningful, and there are aspects of our relations with each other that are transcendent. And I am deeply awed by the universe and my place within it. And there are, there are experiences, spiritual experiences, which I'm interested in having. These are all fine things to say. Let's not use a word that means something different. Free will, right? I talked to Philip Pettit recently, that's going to be next week's episode, and he still somewhat uses the language of free will. I mean, he's a compatibilist, right? But what he means by it is something different, and he says, when I say to someone, you could have done otherwise, what I'm actually doing, and I love this phrase and I'm going to pick it up and use it, is it's sort of a retroactive exhortation. If I say someone before before the fact, I think you should tell the truth, what I'm doing is I'm assuming they're persuadable. And of course, being persuadable is just to say that, that their actions are, are voluntary and can be influenced by me. It's nothing at all to say with origination, right? And they're also sort of after the fact persuadable. If you do lie or steal or whatever, and I say to you afterwards, you could have done otherwise. What I'm really saying is I'm not giving up on you. I still believe that you are reachable. In theory, at least, you're reachable by my persuasion. But this is really interesting, see, right? Because if that's what we mean to say, then that's what we should say, and I think we'd be more effective if we did. And I'm going to map this onto social justice, and if this seems like a bizarre lateral leap, just work with me. And also, after this, I'm going to take a pause on social justice for a bit. We're going to go back to more traditional political philosophy. But just work with me on this one. If, when we say to someone, you could have done otherwise, we mean something different by those words than what the person hears. So why not use the words that we really mean? So, let's say the moral behaviour that we're condemning is racism or sexism, or merely just, maybe not even that serious, merely an understanding of how race and gender are operative in the world that we disagree with. What a social justice might say, you're being problematic, right? Well, if what we mean to say there is I am retroactively exhorting you, I am talking to you because I think at some level, in theory, you're persuadable. We're raising these concerns about race and gender because we believe that society can change. We believe that society is in a continual and continually unfolding state of progress or non-progress, how we treat people, how we treat women has improved, it can continue to improve, likewise with race, it can also get worse, there's no iron law of progress, but we're actually, when we make moral criticism, expressing a sort of faith, faith either in the individual person or in society at large, that you can improve, that you're better than this. 
in a sense, it's a, it is a statement of belief in you. We are not giving up on you. And you're not giving up on us. Because if we had given up on you, the language of moral condemnation would make no sense. If, as some ju social justice types believe, and I disagree with this and I'll explain why, if, and I'll just use the language of black radicals here, here's what they would say. White supremacy is inherently evil and is inherently inseparable from white people. What that essentially means is white people are always going to be racist, all of them are always necessarily going to be racist, and they're not getting any better. You're not going to talk them out of it. It's too deeply wired in. If that's the case, now I disagree with that as an empirical description of the world. I think many white people are racist, maybe even most are subtly racist, but I think people are improvable. But if that were true, then the language of moral blame actually makes no sense to use at all here. If it is true that white people are always going to be racist, and, and there's nothing you can do about it, if that is true, then blaming them, talking badly about them in moral terms, feeling anger towards them, are all as irrational as feeling anger towards a hurricane, or towards a natural disaster. We might be hurt, or damaged, or traumatized by a natural disaster, but we're not angry at it. We don't blame it. Bringing those words in, if they are to make any sense at all, can only make sense if the other person is at least in theory persuadable. And I think that's a really interesting insight. And thinking about the philosophy of this more has encouraged me to think about what am I doing when I complain about societal racism. And I think the conclusion that leads you to actually nicely mirrors the conclusion I reached with Kellyanne Mendoza, the human rights activist, in the fourth episode, the first episode, we ever talked about social justice, which is don't cancel people, don't confront them, don't shut them down, don't just go, fuck you, you're a racist. The act of moral intervention should be an act of compassion. It's an act of saying, I believe that you can be better, which as a moral consequentialist, all I'm saying is, I believe that your life can be more valuable, that you can live a life that is richer and is better for you, and is better for everyone around you. I believe that you can do this. Even if perhaps I think it's very unlikely that the person will, I haven't given up on them. But listen to how that sounds. That just sounds so different, right? And I'm going to spend some time thinking about, is there a way those of us who have social justice concerns can communicate it in a way where we're saying what we mean? So if we say, you know, fuck you, you're a racist, you're always going to be a racist, we're writing you off, that's actually sort of an internally inconsistent statement. The, the language of morality, if it is to mean anything at all, means that people are persuadable. And if what we're saying when we blame someone and we say you shouldn't have done that, if what we're really saying there is I am appealing to you to be better, I believe that you can be, I believe that you can lead a better life, then why don't we say that? If nothing else, might it not be more effective? So. 
thinking about free will, I think does have a use in that if the questioner just says, well, yes, everyone knows, you know, originalist free will doesn't make any sense, it's, it's, it's all compatibilism now, let's actually start saying what we mean. And I, I'm increasingly realising this is really important, in that if what people are hearing when we say privilege is absolute advantage or affluence or something like that, is there not another set of words that we can use? Comparative advantage, maybe, although I know that's already kind of taken by economics. If what we mean by God, and we, I'm talking like sophisticated theologians, is a sense of love and wonder for the world, let's stop saying God. Why do we need to hang on to that term? Let's just say, I feel love and wonder for the world, I feel connected to the world, and I find the world meaningful. If that's all you mean by God, then why don't we just say that? Because then we can actually have a conversation. I can't have a conversation. I find it very difficult when someone's using the word God on me, because it's I can't relate to that. And yes, I can start using the word God to mean what you think it means, but that's but again, language is a collective good. That's not how most people are using God. And likewise with social justice, let's think really carefully about ultimate responsibility here. If it is the case that people do not have originalist free will, as I've argued they don't, then what are we doing when we blame them for their actions? It's irrational to hate people who can't change. So, if what we're doing is, and I love Philip Pettit's phrase, I'm going to use this, if what we're doing is retroactively exhorting them, let's maybe start thinking about that language. So that's the first half of a thought. I don't have a second half of that thought, but if that prompts any thoughts in you, please do send them to me. Um, This is something I'm increasingly interested in. So email, Facebook, Twitter whatever. I generally read all the comments, so get back to me on that. Okay, so that's that one. Okay, final question. And again, I'm going to take my time on this one because I want to get it right. I've been talking about race a bit on the podcast, and a bunch of people have asked me about the Charles Murray race and IQ thesis. I guess I invited this because I did say that I didn't think this was credible. Okay, so here goes. Um, I got quite a long and thoughtful email on this from someone who was asked to present an opinion on the bell curve to a Mensa conference. So I'm going to read through this email, which which I think is a good email, and it's as well as the question can be asked, but there's a couple of points I'm going to just sort of jump into the text and give it, um, my thoughts, and then I'm going to say, yeah, why I don't agree with this and why I think it's harmful. So for those of you who don't know, Charles Murray is the author of The Bell Curve, and he's written a lot about a bunch of different things, but pertinent to this, he's famous for arguing that the average mean intelligence for black people is less, and that the basis for that is genetic. So I'll frame this generally. There is a test score gap, black students 
tend to score a little lower on tests than white students do. And there's also um, an IQ test gap. So if you take an IQ test, there is a difference between the scores black get and white get. Now, that could be environmental or it could be genetic. So it could be to do with, you know, we know things like income and education level affect IQ. Is it that or are black people just inherently less smart? And Charles Murray is famous for arguing that it's at least in part that black people are inherently less smart. So let me go to this email. Um, quote, I was asked by some of the staff on the forum to give an opinion on the bell curve, which was in the news at the time. Why the best they thought they could get to criticise it was a physicist and then lawyer, I'm not sure, but anyway, I agreed, bought the book and worked through it looking for faults. Okay, I've never been a great statistician, physics doesn't need much stats, but I preserved anyhow. What I determined was, firstly, that I'm quite convinced that Murray and Hernstein believed in the validity of their research, and they weren't motivated by racist considerations, though I can't necessarily say the same for those who funded them. Pause. So, end quote. I've actually got a little bit of a point I want to make on this, in that I think when people say I'm being unfair, this is another one of we're hearing different things in the same word type things, when people say I'm being unfair for saying that someone's a racist or a misogynist or something like that, I think we're using the word in different ways. So implicit in this that Charles Murray wasn't um, motivated by any racist consideration would be the idea that by racist you mean he hates black people and he's really out to just prove something negative about them. That is one meaning of the word racist, that's not really what I mean. So let's use the analogy to sexism. It, there is one type of sexism, which is a, a visceral hatred of women, you can't stand women, you know, whatever. That's actually not how most sexists think. Most sexists, if you ask them, would say, I love women. Are you kidding? Women are beautiful, amazing creatures who are, of course, delicate and need to be kept out of the workforce and, and you know, stay in the home and stuff like that. But that's out of concern for them, don't you understand? It's out of concern for women, and I want to protect them and keep them in their natural role. So it's a sort of patronising, positive, pedestal-type sexism. Most sexists think they like women. What makes them sexist is that they think women should be treated differently to men, that they are different to men. Now, that's a point of view. You know, if that's your point of view, just express it. Say, yeah, I am sexist. I think men and women should be treated pretty differently. I think they should have different roles and different functions. I think that they are different. Now, I don't agree with that point of view, but it's a point of view. Likewise with racism. I don't think all racists would necessarily want to just start lynching black people again if that was something that was allowed. I think, analogous to sexism, they kind of have a patronising, paternalistic view. Don't you understand? And this is Charles Murray in a nutshell. Don't you understand we need to take care of the blacks and look after them? That they aren't capable. This is what slave owners said as well. They just aren't capable of taking on the same burdens as the white man. It's out of concern for them, you understand, that I think I think we should not place unduly on them the burdens of owning property back in the day or going to an elite college now. We're concerned that they'll fall behind, that they're 
intellectual abilities will, will rise to the challenge of, 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 of what white students can do. This is, this is overtly what Charles Murray is saying. And I just, I, it's, it's racist. Like, that, to my mind, is racism. It's not just hatred of or bad intentions or doing bad science. It's viewing different groups of people foundationally differently. Now, that might be your point of view. You might have evidence for it, but that falls within my definition of racism. Now, that's a small point, but I think actually a lot hinges on that. that that's what I mean when I say someone's a racist. Um, so, back to the text. Secondly, there were a lot of reasons why the apparent conclusions were over-egging the pudding, not least my suspicions about the utility of IQ tests in the first place. But there were a lot of little niggles which reduced significance rather than any overriding reason why the whole project was, quote, bad science. Okay, two points on that. Firstly on the IQ test, secondly on the science. As far as the IQ test goes, I'm, there's two questions here. One, is, is intelligence reducible to one general measure? And two, are IQ tests a good way of measuring this? Um, I'm actually agnostic on both fronts. I think I just don't know enough to really know. So, first of all, is intelligence reducible to one metric, sometimes called G? Um, I can kind of see both sides of the argument on this one. On the one hand, people say, well, there's lots of different types of intelligence. There's you know, musical intelligence, there's mathematical intelligence, there's linguistic intelligence, there's written intelligence. And, you know, they, those might not track or correlate with each other. Different people are gifted in different ways. And I like that idea. It also does seem a bit optimistic. And it seems like people are kind of being a little bit politically correct and just not quite admitting that some people just are stupid, right? And some people are smart. Now, whether or not you could get that down to a single metric, I don't know. I'm not sure anyone knows enough to know, but I'm not hedging an opinion there. The second would be, are IQ tests a good measure of that? I, I've heard really smart people argue it both ways. I don't know. So that's my opinion there is that I just, I don't know, and I think that's reasonable to say that you don't know. Um, but let's grant that it is. I don't think the Murray thesis stands or falls on whether or not IQ tests are valid. I think there's reasons to think that they're not, but let, let's just say that they are. Now, the bad science implies that he's done something funny with his regressions or whatever. So this is how it works. You take a, a, a variable, let's say IQ, um, and you're trying to explain that difference using other variables. So you hold constant for them using a technique called regression. So this is a slightly simplified way of talking about this. Someone like Brian Earp would probably call me out. But what you're in effect doing is saying, if there's a difference in test scores between black people and white people, well, is that because of the difference in income between black people and white people, right? So you do a regression, and what that sort of tells you, and again, this is a simplification, but it tells you if a black person and a white person are of the same income level, will there be a gap between their test scores, right? And what Murray does is he holds constant for a number of factors and finds that 
th there's still a gap which hasn't been explained away. So my critique is not that they set up the regression wrong. Honestly, I haven't gone through all his stats. Let's just assume that the stats are valid. Some people have argued that they're not, but that's not what I mean when I say bad science. And, um... And, I, in fact, I haven't used the word bad science when describing this. Um, back to the email. I could not but conclude that intellectual ability was, quote, not 100% nurture rather than nature, rather something more like 50-50 to 70-30, and there almost certainly were statistically significant differences between the genetic component of intellectual ability between population groups. There are, after all, statistically significant differences between the genetic component of sporting ability between different population groups. The trouble was that from a public policy point of view, this was not an acceptable conclusion. Okay, so, pause. I think the writer of this email is well-intentioned. I don't think that they're not coming from the sort of quote-unquote racist place. They're not out to prove, um, they're not out to prove, um, something negative, and indeed it sounds like they've sort of been convinced by this in spite of themselves, but nonetheless I think they've missed a step here, and I want to just really dig in on what I think that step is, because I think a lot of people have missed this step, right? So the argument is, intelligence is a real thing, IQ tests are a valid way of measuring it, there is a difference in IQ tests between black and white people, and that difference persists even when controlling for other factors. Ergo, it's not environmental, it's genetic. Black people are just genetically inferior. Okay, this is not a valid argument, right? There's a snuck premise in here. There's something that's been snuck in, right? And here's what's been snuck in. What's been snuck in is that if the cause of the test gap is not an empirically measurable variable which we know about and can control for, then it's necessarily genetic. Let me just say that again. There is a test gap, and let's assume that intelligence is a real thing and IQs are a valid way to measure it. There can be any number of reasons for that test gap, some of them will be empirically measurable, some of them will not. Right? So there's many, many things that could be causing that that are not empirically measurable. There are many things in this world that are causally operative, but are not empirically measurable. So there's something like income, but there's also social dynamics and culture. So I'm taking this example from John McWhorter, who is a sort of, um, he does the Glenn Lowry podcast all the time. He's sort of a, a linguist, a, a social conservative on race. He's black himself. Um, and he says, it just does tend to be the case that culturally black children are a little bit less interested in tests. And it's nothing about the children. It's imagine two children and they both get told by their parents, it's important for you to do well in school because that'll lead you to success later in life, right? They both get told the exact same thing by their parents. And let's just say for the sake of argument that in terms of anything empirically measurable, um, their age, their, their parents' income, their nutrition levels, anything you can measure, they're the same, right? 
but one of those children is black and has black parents, and one of those children is white and has white parents, right? Now, let's just say that they say the same thing, but they've had different lives. For the white people, it has been true for them that they've seen you know, say they're, they're, they're slightly older parents, they're, they grew up in the 60s, they've seen that the people they went to school with in a mostly white school who tried hard, that they did succeed, that for white people the American dream was real. Now, for the black parent, that might not be true. Even if they had the same income as the white parent, they maybe went to an all-black school, they saw that the people around them who tried hard often didn't succeed, and often didn't succeed for, for real reasons. And so... When they tell the child, you've got to try hard in school to succeed, in a way that's probably subconscious, both for them and for the child, at some level they don't quite believe what they're saying. At some level, they're, they're, they're doubting it. They might not even realise it, but they are. For legitimate reasons that have nothing to do with, histori with, with genetic inferiority. Just culture and cultural difference, right? Now, the result is, at some level, the child isn't as invested in that option. So when the white little girl gets the test, she's excited. She thinks, great, and just listen to the difference in my tone, great, this is an opportunity to prove myself and to be successful. The black child, the black little girl, thinks, oh, okay, you know, um, okay, well, this is something I've got to do and do well on. You know, this is a chance to... At just some level, the investment, the belief in that, isn't there to the same degree, right? Now, I'm not saying that is the cause, right? But you can see how maybe that black little girl scores a few points lower. But, but And let's just say for the sake of argument that this black little girl and this white little girl have the exact same brain chemistry. They have the exact same hardware. They, they, they have the exact same um, setup of their brains. But just because of that cultural difference, the black little girl tries a little bit less hard. Now, I'm not saying that is the, the cause. I'm saying that is a possible cause. In all likelihood, the actual things that are causally operative here, they'll probably hundreds of causes, probably thousands. Some of those causes might work in black people's favour, right? It might be that black people, the father sits down with the daughter and says, listen, you know, because we're black, we have to try extra hard. We have to persevere in the face of discrimination. That's a talk that might happen in black families, but not white families, that, that works to increase black performance. But that will be working against all sorts of other causes that are working the other way. Right? Now, here's the point I'm trying to make. You could tell a million different stories like that, right? I'll give you just one more, actually. Um, if you feel threatened or insecure, your ability to take a test decreases. That's proven any number of times. Now, is it plausible that a black little boy and a white little boy who have the same income live in the same neighbourhood, everything measurable about them is the same, because of the reality of racism, at some level, even if it's subconscious, the black kid feels a little bit more threatened, just generally, feels a little bit more insecure, feels a little bit more on edge, right? In a way that that might impact their ability to take a test. There's, I, I could spend another hour just constructing possible stories but here's the point. Of those stories I told, 
you'd be buggered to measure it. If part of the difference is that there's just a little bit less enthusiasm in the tone of voice when black people tell their kids to do well in school, how on earth would you ever measure that? And of course, obviously, that won't be true for all black people and all white people. There'll be white people who say the words and kind of don't believe them, and there'll be black people who absolutely believe them. That just on average, on aggregate, that is a cultural difference. That's not literally what's happening in every black household. This is a story, a parable, but it's illustrative of the fact that there's a plethora of possible causes of which genetics is one, right? Someone said to me, um, they, they, they emailed me, this isn't the one I've been reading from, but like, I can't rule out that it's genetic. Yeah, I can't rule out that there's leprechauns, right? Like, you can't, you, that's asking me to prove a negative. So, but the idea that then that, that, that takes this thesis to the realm of the credible, no. No, I'm sorry. So just to really nail this in, there is a test gap. Now, it might be that, like, actually IQ tests aren't a very good measure, actually the underlying conceptual framework about how we think about intelligence is wrong, in which case all of this just kind of becomes a moot point. Say that intelligence is real, it reduces to a single metric, and that metric is discoverable in IQ tests. I'm kind of sceptical about that, that seems a bit reductive to me, but just say that it's true. Now say that it's true that there is a difference in the average test score between two different populations. There are an almost infinite sea of things that could be causing that. And like I said, most likely there'll be a large number of different causes. Of those causes, we would expect, would we not, that some will be measurable and some will not, given how complex social structures are, and given that not all of, indeed probably most of what happens in social structures, is not directly measurable. If this isn't going in, let me try an example. I've heard it asserted, I don't know if it's true, but just say that it is, I've heard it asserted that life expectancy is longer for religious people. Just say that it is, right? Why is that? If I had to guess, something about finding meaning and community. But let's say you control for the for the measurable factors. You control for are you part of a community. You, you even survey people and ask, do you find meaning in your life? And let's say that there's still a gap between atheists and religious people. Does that mean there's a genetic difference? No, because what the religious person means by meaning and what the atheist means by meaning will likely be quite different. And there's something about the religious sense of meaning and the religious sense of community and connectedness that is causing physiological changes that lead to increased life expectancy. Just say, I don't know. But the point is, we have an observed difference between two populations, in this case the religious and non-religious, the fact that we can't fully explain that difference by measurable factors doesn't mean that that difference is genetic. It means that there are other factors that we haven't directly observed that are causing it, of which one possibility is that it's genetic. Same with race and IQ. There are any number of things that could be causing this. The fact that we can't pin it down to something that we can measure, assuming even that that's true, there's a lot of people who say it isn't, but I'll grant you, 
every step of the argument. I'll grant you that the, the, the intelligence is a real thing and that IQ measures it. I'll grant you that Charles Murray did his statistics correctly. I'll grant you that there's still a gap. And actually, there's a whole bunch of reasons why I shouldn't grant you most of those things. But I'll grant you all of that. You still don't get that it's genetic. That's not what falls out from that. What falls out from that is there is a cause, or more likely set of causes, that are leading to that divergence that we have not yet found a way to directly measure. That's all. That's all that it proves. So even if I grant the entire argument, all that it proves is that there is an unknown variable or variables that we're not accounting for, which, yes, could be genetic, but it could also be a bunch of other stuff. It doesn't follow. And this brings me on to my final point, then I'll stop, is I exempt the person whose email I read, which is a weird situation. They were asked to review the book for a conference and seemed to sort of follow along with it in spite of themselves. This is why I find this problematic. There's a lot of people who desperately want to believe it's true. And here's the way I look at this. I just... John McWhorter said this, actually. He said, I just feel it in my gut as strongly as I felt anything that this isn't true. I feel the same way. I just feel it that this isn't true. Now, that's not a good reason to doubt the validity of a scientific conclusion. I've given you my reasons, right? But I do just feel it. And that tells you something about me. It tells you about my priors. It tells you about my biases, right? Now, you might get a position that's more middle of the road, that's more, well, I don't know, or, you know, this is what the statistics appear to say, and da da da, which sort of I take to be the vibe of the email I've been reading. But there's a lot of people whose attitude towards this seems to be the inverse of mine, who when they hear, oh, there's this statistical evidence that black people are genetically inferior, they go, I fucking knew it. I knew it. Doesn't that make so much sense? What was going on in the head of those people prior to finding this information? Why is this so intuitive to so many people? What was in their heads that they went, that makes so much sense? Nothing good, right? That's what's disturbing about this. It's not that someone missed a step in a logical argument, it's a big step, and the argument doesn't show what he purports that it shows. But why has this become a meme? Why has this become something that is informing public policy? Why are people so eager to believe it's true? This is really disturbing, folks. And I don't get how you're not disturbed by it. That a large proportion of intellectual, intellectuals, intellectual culture, seems to have taken to heart something that I am convinced in 30 years will be on the shelf with phrenology. This wants to make us think twice. This is the moment where we go, you know those black radicals who I disagree with, who say that we live in a white supremacist society. Well, what is this? But the, What is this? What can you call it but white supremacy? What world do we want to live in? 
Do we want to be in a world where a black professor will be interrupted by some know-it-all little white libertarian who goes, well, you know, I just want to flag the race and IQ thing, and you might not be understanding me because of, you know, your genetic inheritance, and, you know, here's my little stats table to prove it. Do we want to be in a world where we just look at the incredible differential outcomes that, that occur between black and white people and go, that's okay. We don't need to be concerned about this. It's just their genetics. Is, is that who we want to be? This is not okay. And... Someone asked, am I against it because I think it's politically incorrect or because I think it's wrong? Because I think it's wrong, right? But it's wrong on two levels. One, I just think there's a hole in the argument. The argument does not prove what it set out to prove. But two, this is just an incredibly damaging belief. 15% of America is strongly opposed to interracial relationships. 15, 20% of America, white America, that is, doesn't want black people living in their neighbourhoods. These are incredibly damaging views. We should be concerned by anything that gives those people ammunition. And the fact that people aren't concerned by it, the fact that Sam Harris can get up and go, and just not understand why people are concerned about the social impact of this, is mind-blowing to me. It would be a dangerous belief if it were true. It's an incredibly dangerous belief now that it's false. Why would it be dangerous if it were true? Because if it were true that a few percentage points were caused by genetics, then there is an entire class of people who would take that and use it to justify something that would end up looking a lot like apartheid. That's why. And the fact that intelligent people don't get why people are concerned about this, especially given that it's not true, or at the very least not evidenced. That's why I'm concerned by this. So, enough. I'm drawing a red line. We're going to go back to more traditional political philosophy, and I'm going to stop talking about race for a bit. Not because it's not important, but because I want to present a variety of different people and arguments and views on this show. As always, if you like the podcast, please sponsor us on Patreon, subscribe on social media, and... If you have thoughts, comments on this, please do send them to me. So, thanks again for listening, and I'll see you next week when I'll be rejoined by the philosopher Philip Pettit.